I'm Christy Gupton, and I'm an Employee Benefits Advisor. Welcome to Healthcare Solutions, a podcast where we explore innovations in healthcare, cost containment strategies, and employee well-being. We'll discuss every way possible to turn our healthcare system back into the kind of environment where patient care comes first and costs go down as a result. I invite you to join me to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. In today's episode, I'm talking with Mark Watson and Kent Thomas. Mark Watson spent 24 years as the Innovative HR Director at Union County, North Carolina. As of January 1st, 2019, Mark was named the Union County Manager. Mark is credited for bringing direct primary care as an embedded benefit in the employee health plan at Union County, a move that has saved millions for Union County taxpayers. Joining us on this podcast is also Kent Thomas of Carolina Health Alliance. Kent has advised Union County as they've implemented cost-saving innovations in their prescription drug benefit and other plan design improvements. The recurring theme you'll hear today should remind you of the highest calling of a true fiduciary, that is, to act solely in the interest of plan participants and their beneficiaries. Listen here and learn from these two shining examples of what a true fiduciary is. In last week's episode... When you strip the paint off of that vehicle, you still got a 1960s model platform of which our health care has been administered. Uh, and that's what Union County has, has uh, changed. I've said it uh, many times that so much money is being spent in these non-integrated silos where you've got the health plan and then the prescription benefit plan and then the wellness program and then the on-site clinic and then the EAP and then the this and then the that. And we could go on and on and they're, and they're all separate from each other. They're all the moving parts of a health plan, but they seem to be siloed, you know, so that they're not integrated. This medical home model really takes all of those perspectives and brings them under one umbrella so that that direct primary care physician can be um, touching each one of those. They certainly touch the delivery of of primary care and under the health plan and help deal with the prescription benefit to its highest um, efficiency level and then um, you know certainly don't need a wellness plan if you've got a great relationship with your primary care physician right and then and then the on-site clinic you can wash that away and all of those other things that are just money tacked on money tacked on money you can streamline all of that with a good relationship-based value-based primary care situation. And with the exchange of data. Mm-hmm. And Mark is, will tell you that that's the, the key to uh, to that. And and on top of that, the data has to be legitimate data, meaning that uh, data is always legitimate in the form that is given to someone, so that's legitimate data. But what makes up that data right. is, is oftentimes, um, for lack of a better word, uh, clouded by each one of those vendors that's that silo that you mentioned uh, has their own agenda and has had their own agenda for a long time. And what Mark's been able to do here is, and what what we try to do with all of our, our clients is to is to take each one of those vendors, separate them financially, 
right, to where there's no dependence from the, the pharmacy benefit manager to the third-party administrator to whoever else is to the PPOs to all the, these things. We eliminate that. Okay, and we say, how much does it take for you to perform this duty? Right. And a good vendor will tell you, that's what, here's how much it will, will take. If it's fair and reasonable and they're performing the duties that they want to do, then they can partner with us. And that's what Mark's been able to, over the years, been able to secure. Here's what it is. Here's how much it costs. Here's what it means to you. And here's what the return on, your, on that particular investment is. Mm-hmm. Now for more. That, that brings in the discussion about plan design. Because you can't just have uh, the kind of return on investment with any of those moving parts, certainly not direct primary care, without an integrated plan design where not only you have um, have that as a part of the plan, not some tack on, right? I've seen several plans lately where employers have seen the value of direct primary care and they've just decided to pay on top of what their regular health plan costs are because they believe in the value of it. But, you know, let's help employers understand that they, they need the ability to design their own plan so that they're not using DPC as just a, an added value. It's really something and then that you've they can get incorporate. The, right, and then you've got to be able to influence the members to go, go there. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? You give you away free generic drugs. Right. Right? You waive the deductibles. You waive out-of-pocket. take away all the barriers. Exactly. That's right. You steerage. And Mark can speak to that better than I can. Well, a couple of things that I would like to go back and em- emphasize that Kent pointed out. One, one is that <clears throat> you employers and individuals would never manage their personal business uh, without knowing where all the dollars go that they're spending. Most private sector entities are not going to um, do business unless they know where all the dollars are going and they know exactly what they're getting. Um, You know, rightly or wrongly, I feel that uh, in the public sector arena, um, we have been lulled to sleep. I have used the term asleep at the wheel. Before. Yeah, we have, well, we've been we've been lulled asleep, um, and when it comes to um, understanding where the dollars are going and how the dollars are being spent, it's easy to pay an invoice for you know when every month you you have five hundred members, you receive a premium per each member, you know you get the invoice, you pay the invoice. But do you really know where those dollars are going, and do you really know what's making up that premium? How much profit margin is it in for the carrier? You know, is thirty to forty percent reasonable and acceptable? It is a very subjective question, but you would think that in a public sector situation that there's more controls. I think it's a question worth answering. Right. Um, So you have have that part. The other part that, and and I'll I'll just say this since we're on the topic. So once you understand where all the dollars are going, then you're in control of your health plan. You are in 100% 
control of your health plan once you know where all the dollars are going. How you design your plan, what kind of benefits you want to provide, you know, all of that kind of thing, totally up to the employer organization, you know. I think that's when you have to circle back around and figure out whether your health plan is actually meeting the needs of your employees Mm -hmm. and their families. But you're in control. When you know where the dollars go, you're in control. So with DPC, you know, one of the, you mentioned that employers um, are treating DPC as a kind of an add-on, like a wellness plan or whatever, and then they're also providing their health plan. Well, that's really a double expense. It is. Primary care physicians can perform can't help me with this percentage number, but is it like 85% of all medical procedures? Something like and that. And some more than that, internists more than that. Most yeah, can, be, can be performed by a primary care physician in the office. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you just think about that. So if 85%, and I know this is a simplistic way to say this, but let's say 85% of all the claims that come into the health plan could have been performed by a primary care physician in the office. When you when when you allow the primary care physician to do the things that they're trained to do and and it doesn't generate more office visits then you start talking about economies. Mm-hmm. The, the, real, the, the silver bullet with direct primary care in terms of its financials and how it impacts the, the plan, the, the employer plan, is that these, these services are being provided at a fixed cost. So there's a negotiated fee that the employer pays to the physician or the physician's group to see their employees are eligible members at no, and, and, and then the employer, the employer could say at no cost, you know, you can go to the DPC at no cost or there may be uh, a minimal charge. I can tell you that, but for us though, it's at no cost because you want to take away all those financial barriers and if you say wow they should be paying a $10 copay or something employees should be paying something well think about that to what end and what purpose okay so your employees are going to pay a $10 copay to go to the physician that's $10 out of their pocket every time they go you know are you really offsetting any cost to the plan no Especially if you have to ask that employee to decide, do I have $10 today or do I need to wait till tomorrow? In a lot of cases, that's, that's the case. And, you know, males are, that you're getting into the mind of the male patient right. because males will think <laughs> about, do I have $10 in my pocket? All right. You know. Or do I, you know, do I have to swing by the bank to pick it up? If I have to swing by the bank to pick it up, 
I'm there's at 18, I'm, they're not going to the doctor. Right. I'll just suffer through it. So it's, you know, the it being a fixed cost, it doesn't matter how many times, it doesn't matter what the, the, the level of frequency of office visits are, your costs are never going to be more than the negotiated fixed fee. Mm -hmm. That's huge. And then when you pointed out earlier, Kent, that the... Um, that medical home becomes a navigator into the rest of the system and an, a level of oversight, then you start to see these big procedures uh, not happen as often. And I bet you, and this is just a guess, I'm going to throw it out here and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. <clears throat> I bet you when a procedure does need to happen, let's say it's a surgery, if there is this level of professional oversight, I mean, these are peers of each other, right? The, the DPC doctor and maybe a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon from across town. These are each other's peers and they are in a sort of a brotherhood, sisterhood way, they're holding each other accountable to their, their Hippocratic oath, right? So I'm wondering, and here's, here's the question I'm gonna pose. Do you think that, um, post-surgical pain is um, treated differently because we're all in the news right now about opioids. So do you think when there's a DPC relationship ingrained in a, in a big health plan like this, you see opioids prescribed less often when there's a surgical, you know, a surgical procedure that needs to happen? Well, you, well there's several different parts to, to your, what I'm you sorry. just brought up. That's it was okay. a complex one. The, but I knew you could handle it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe overstating it a little bit. Um, when you talk about the relationship between the the primary caregiver and a particular, uh, ortho, in your example, the uh, orthopedic surgeon, normally, and this is where the fine line comes in, um, and Mark's found this out with the physicians that the county has hired here, normally those, those type of peer-to-peer -peer relationships are between uh, an independent uh, direct or independent uh, primary care physician uh, and maybe an independent or most often a uh, hospital system owned orthopedic surgeon. Sure. Okay, so you got several things at, at play there. The, the independent primary care physician is much more likely to be able to uh, facilitate some oversight and uh, Develop that relationship over the years with that, with the orthopedic surgeon. Whereas, and the examples were, were great uh, earlier. Um, in a direct primary care environment, many of the physicians out there can perform dermatological procedures. They can do a, a number of different things, but if they work in a particular environments where, as you recall, they've got seven minutes, ten minutes, or whatever, they don't have time to do that. They can work within a system then that particular physician was going to refer them on to a specialist or a dermatologist or who, whoever else uh, is out there. So you got those things at play. Now back to the opioids, uh, and you just stated this well, in the, the uh, aftercare of a particular surgical procedure is, is the most simplistic of them all. The opioids um, treat a symptom, right? They don't treat a problem. Right. It's the, this is the symptom. Um, the more engaged the primary care physician is uh, with oversight to see exactly what's been prescribed from that 
uh, orthopedic uh, surgeon on the way out the door with what needs to be um, integrated in what their particular um, prescribing habits are is, is, is paramount. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not an easy job. It is not an easy job when there's another caregiver involved. Now, when it specifically is a primary care physician, that's much easier because that primary care physician, especially when you've got a DP model, DPC model like here, is, is the overseer. Right, so the only time that this particular patient who has developed a problem is getting these particular drugs, for the most part, barring some outlier physicians who are not going to be physicians long, um, is is from other some other source. So you need oversight on all of it, right? When we get back to the the different components that make up a health plan, that's where these people come in involved too. For instance, um, under the Union County model, several other ones with the pharmacy component, it's very important that the, the plan itself has a clear understanding of how many uh, particular different opioids are going to be administered before the, the vending company, the pharmacy benefit manager, whoever that may be, says, wait a second, right? And it can't be a lot because you're going to get a lot more coming from the surgical procedure than you are from the from the primary care people mm-hmm. so it's got I mean it's a slippery slope that you've got to be very very careful on um, at the end of the day the more people are involved directly with a primary care physician that has the time to spend with them the least likely they are going to be uh, treating these symptoms with these type of narcotics um, because they're going to get better opportunity to care for the particular problem that's causing those symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your questions or not, but it's, <laughs> it's yeah. fairly complex. It is a complex uh, issue mm-hmm. all the way around. You know, um, Mark, I, I want to pose this question to you. In, in episode five, I asked um, the question about these class action lawsuits that many uh, local governments are, are jumping on right now. And, and to their credit, you know, they deserve to hold somebody accountable for the, the draining of the resources. I mean, think about um, the number of children in foster care that didn't used to be there and the number of calls for your EMS um, department that didn't used to happen and, you know, all, all of these dynamics. So I'm not saying that especially counties don't have a reason to jump onto these uh, <clears throat> class action lawsuits, but the question I do want to ask a lot of them is, when are you going to get your own house in order? You know, when are you going to tighten up your own health plan so that it's not divvying out um, opioids to employees unbeknownst to you, right? I think there's, um, um, you know, the pot in the kettle calling somebody, <laughs> calling somebody a, a, a color, you know, and, and it's not necessarily finger pointing in the right direction when you're not um, doing your own fiduciary duty. So I think I think you probably have a perspective on that. Well, it, it, it goes back to something I said a minute ago. And if you don't know where your dollars are going, you don't know what you're paying for, you can't manage it. Right. And that's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely the bottom line here. You have to be able to know where the dollars are going, what they're being spent on, 
before you can con- before you one can control it and one manage it. So <clears throat> there are a couple of different pharmacy models, pharmacy benefit models out there, pharmacy benefit management models out there. And we had been on a traditional model for quite some time. And I was not able to get all of the answers that I needed when I asked the question concerning the types of the types of medications being prescribed, the frequency of the medications being prescribed, the cost of those medications over time. Um, you know how how come uh, brand X cost me or cost a plan fifty dollars? You know last month, and it's costing me two hundred and fifty dollars this month. Right, that's important. You know, I mean, I want to know why. Mm-hmm. You know, um, <clears throat> those types of things. Um, there, there is a pharmacy benefit management model um, that utilizes transparent pricing. That is a model that we changed to. I guess that's what we changed to about six years ago. It was right. Yeah. So we changed the transparent pricing model on that. It gives you audit rights as an employer. Um, you know what's being prescribed, and it doesn't necessarily. I'm, I'm not interested in who is being prescribed to. That comes in the the, the confidential bill sure. that you know <laughs> gets paid and all that kind of stuff. But I'm interested in show me the summary. You know, how many times are is this drug being prescribed? You know, that drug being prescribed. You know, what's the cost of this versus that? Show me the show me the drugs that the top ten drugs that had the highest price increases over the last month. Right. You know, why is that? Mm-hmm. Somebody better be able to answer <laughs> that question. Right. You know? And it's not about you know, using that data and then say, oh, we're not going to cover this particular drug anymore. Or we're not going to be able to provide that particular drug anymore. We actually um, utilize um, a pharmacist to go in and do this analysis for us. So from a from a pure clinical standpoint, he's able to tell us or show us this particular drug just came on the market. The same thing is available over the counter, and here's the name of it. Right. And it costs two dollars mm-hmm. instead of two hundred dollars. Exactly. Or here is two different. Here is a drug that blends two. Um, over-the-counter medications, uh, an aspirin and a Pepsi. Right. You know? (laughs) And you can buy both of these over-the-counter. You can take them together, or you can get this prescription version Mm -hmm. for $200. Right. With all kinds of rebates going back to the PPM, right? But I'll tell you, 
you know, I'm not a pharmacist. I wouldn't know that the the ingredients of this particular uh, prescription medication are the same as what I can buy over the counter. Right. And going back to the DPC relationship and the fact that these physicians are paid on a capitated basis, on a monthly basis for the, the population that they serve, they should, and I'm sure are, very concerned about performing to the, the, the best uh, of the plan, right? So right. I'm sure if, yes, if there's a, a monthly or a quarterly clinical outcomes meeting, and I'm sure those exist, where we talk about right. is Duexis going to be part of our formulary? Yes, and if, if so, why? And if not, why? And then that way the physicians are on the same page with the employer, and where on earth does that actually happen in out in status quo health plan world? Nowhere. Right. So that the the um, the platform that you are describing is really very integrated in a in a care model that is always focused on employee health. And um, yeah, you couldn't do that in a, I'm no, using we, air quotes, wellness program. <laughs> the decisions on formulary, you know, in this model are not solely based on the cost of the drug. You know, well, people need yeah. access to the drugs they need access to. Sure. But if you know, a generic is the same makeup as as this new brand that came out or whatever, you know, whatever the scenario might be. Mm-hmm. You need somebody that can steer you as a plan administrator to tell you that those, can tell you those things. Right. You know, I wouldn't know that. But because we have an individual that helps us with that, you know, we can make better informed decisions. I've, uh, I said it in a prior episode that I was going to trademark a phrase. And if anyone steals it from me off this podcast before <laughs> I have time to do it, I'm going to be very upset. So this is the second time I've actually said this on a podcast. But my... my phrase that I want to trademark is all it takes is a good advisor and a little courage and I think you have both that's true (laughs) that's true Uh, because it couldn't have been easy to jump into uncharted waters where employees might not have ever heard of a certain tactic or or whatever Um, I mean let's talk about current day and use the term that's starting to lose its meaning reference-based pricing Right, that's all in the news uh, because um, one entity wants to, to try it to help hold down costs, and another entity wants to put a negative spin on it. So it's become a bit of a, a political football in our state, anyway. And here we sit in um, uh, March 2019 in, in North Carolina. Uh, but you know, that's just another one of the cost con- containment strategies that is being talked about today. Maybe employees don't know what that is or, or how to even um, understand it yet. But 
just like how you implemented uh, direct primary care. You, you use it as another tool to keep tightening the wrench. How did you phrase it a, a minute ago? You, you, you always try to stay ahead of what's next. Um, you're always trying to um, sharpen the pencil, right, I think you said it. Right, sharpen the pencil. So, so what is next? That's a good question. I'll, I'll tell you, <clears throat> the, the keys to the kingdom <laughs> are these, mm -hmm. okay? You have to know, you have to understand what goes into making up your premium rate. You have to understand the financials. You have to understand where every one of those dollars go. Right. Right? You have to have consistency in your health plan benefits. If you, if you do not have consistency in your health plan benefits, you will never change consumer behavior over time. You will never, it, will, it will never happen. You also, so consistency is a key. Sustainability is a key. For me, I want to make sure that we have a sustainable, a financially sustainable program, but also a, a, a program that delivers sustainable benefits, right? So you've got to have those things in place. And once you have those things in place, that those things begin to put you in control of your health plan. So what comes next? That's always a question because the marketplace is always changing. Reference-based pricing is not new at this point. Some portion of some some parts of the country, the United States, reference-based pricing has been in place for several years now. It is now the accepted uh, method and way of doing business um, in the eastern United States. You know we have pockets uh, of. Uh, geographic pockets where reference-based pricing um, is is being used and starting to gain traction um, it's reference-based pricing when implemented correctly and managed correctly puts an employer in the driver's seat that is a very scary thing for hospital systems who have built their, finan their financial model. I refer to it as the feeder system, mm -hmm. where they have, most hospitals have purchased specialty practices and primary care practices, those types of things. And primary care is the entry portal into the feeder system. So, you know, when you start 
doing something different with the financial plan of some of these very wealthy, even though, you know, and I, and I don't use that term lightly, very wealthy hospital systems that, which just a commentary, I always have to, you know, wonder and ask myself, you know, a lot of the hospital systems um, were originally founded as public entities mm -hmm. and now through legal maneuvering don't act like public entities anymore. They were to be nonprofit, and but that is certainly a misnomer <laughs> these days. Okay. They are very wealthy, and they do have a financial benefit or a financial plan, and and rightly so. They ha they have a, a an enterprise to run. We all depend on that enterprise, but you have to begin to ask yourself. What's the threshold of reasonable mm -hmm. no kidding. when it become when it comes to profit margins and cost? It's the same discussion as the generic versus the brand, right? right. If I can get right. a knee replacement for fifteen thousand, then why would I pay sixty five thousand for it? Right. So on reference based pricing, reference based pricing challenges challenges that institutional financial model and allows the employer to break away from what, what I would term now traditional networks. Every, every self-funded health plan is gonna rent a uh, medical network, a PPO network, a HMO network, or whatever, type of a network in order to access discounts for service and reference-based pricing bypasses that and puts the employer in more direct contact with providers mm -hmm. through a third party, sure. but it's a third party that's working on behalf of the employer. So what you're really looking at is not only eliminating profit margins that eat into your ability to provide meaningful benefits, mm -hmm. but you're also now paying reasonable rates for the procedures that are being Performed. That begs the question, do we really need PPO networks today like we used to? Well, I'm not quite sure we ever needed them. I think it was just a, an evolution of, of um, mergers and acquisitions, right. um, frankly. I think the irony with a lot of this relates to the system is something you brought up. Um, is essentially, especially in this state, you have the hospitals that are the haves and the haves not. There's very little in between. And I think the irony of what's going on with this reference-based pricing piece as it relates to the state employee health uh, plan here is it's now the haves who are defending the haves nots and 
uh, talking about how they're going to be the ones that's hurt worse than the, the, the big systems. When in reality is, it's the haves that have eliminated these these uh, specific hospitals and, and their outliers from being as successful as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Now, in contrast to that, uh, when when I'm associated with reference-based pricing, uh, we love the rule have-nots because you know what? As long as they perform, mm-hmm. and where we can where we can grade their performance right. and, and the quality of, of and based simply on out uh, among other things, but mostly on outcomes. We're going to use them. And guess what they're not going to have to do? They're not going to have to chase deductibles. They're not going to have to chase out-of-pockets. They're not going to have to chase $5,000 a piece. And it's easy to to put that in place when you have large healthcare systems who, like Mark said, that some time ago were uh, were essentially 340B type of hospitals that still participate in those type of programs who are using their own merger and acquisition organizations within the hospital system to buy out oncology departments Mm -hmm. just to be able to grab the 340B drug profits for there, which is totally not what that whole program was supposed to be. So there's a lot of of things you can go into with the 340B. At the end of the day, it comes back to what Mark said, what I've said, is how much does something cost? Mm -hmm. How much are you charging me? What's in this premium? The last part that we have no control over, have no knowledge of, is a bill charge from a hospital. Where did that number come from? And does this really, this 40 or 50% discount from PPO, is it relative to a number that we don't know where it comes from? Well, Medicare is the only, the only benchmark for pricing in this country, and each one of these hospitals that participate have to sign off on it every year. We're, this is a reasonable profit for us. Okay, then the reference-based pricing companies are saying, fine, then we're going to add a very, very generous profit on top of that one. Right. Uh, so I don't see anything wrong with that. A lot of people don't. But we'll see. You know, the market dictates, like Mark said, Texas has been doing this for a 1,000 years. Of course, they're always doing things first there. Uh, ironically, a lot of the northeastern um, areas are starting to do this. North Carolina is a little bit of an outlier because of all the systems we have here. Okay. Like we have one that controls this area. Mm-hmm. We have a couple controls in, in the, um, you know, the Winston-Salem and then over towards the, you know, the, the uh, Duke, Chapel Hill, Raleigh area. A lot of states don't have that. You know, they have their uh, COAs are different things that they have on a lot of that type of performance. But. Well, that's a great place to end our discussion. Thank you both for joining me today. And I I think that this is a message that many other um, uh, local governments will want to hear as well as uh, private sector employers because it's, it's all just about good financial and medical management of a health plan. So thank you both. Thank you for joining our important discussion as we attempt to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. Please subscribe to our podcast and let us know what you think. For more information on the work we do at Custom Benefit Solutions, visit our website at www.custombenefits.work.